Welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. We're kicking off the year with legislative updates. It's been a whirlwind session so far. We have much more knowledgeable people about legislation and policy on the podcast with us. Our guests today are Will Humble, Executive Director of the Arizona Public Health Association and Vitalist Health Foundation trustee, Anna Rossetti, our Director of State Health Advocacy and Public Policy, and Gabe Jaramillo, Director of Healthy Communities. You guys have all been on the podcast. You are no strangers to the show. In case there are any new listeners, what we always like to do is have people introduce themselves. We'll kick it off with you, Will. Yeah. Hi, my name is Will Humble. I've been in the public health world for about 40 years in Arizona. It sounds like it's a long time. I started my career inspecting restaurants. Yeah, that's my introduction to public health. And I spent many years at the state health department, including I was fortunate to be asked to be director during the Brewer position. And now I'm the executive director for the Arizona Public Health Association. Thanks for the invite. Anna, what about you? Hi, good morning. My name is Anna Rossetti. I'm the Director of State Health Policy and Advocacy for Vitalist Health Foundation. And I'm really excited to talk about the legislative session and what we're hearing out there in terms of bills and budgets and all that stuff. Prior to me joining Vitalist, and I've been here for four months, I had a long history with the Department of Health Services. I actually worked under the administration of Will Humble, and now I'm here at Vitalist. In my current role, in addition to state health policy, I also oversee our healthcare integration portfolio for Vitalist. And so just to level set a little bit in terms of what we're discussing today, we are here to talk specifically about the public policy agenda that Vitalist Health Foundation actually support and those that have been approved by our board. We're here, much of our focus is on those public policy agenda, but our top four priority areas are quality and affordable housing, healthcare, civic health, and food environments. And of course, Gabe is here to talk about transportation as well. So I'm excited to be part of it. Thank you. My name is Gabriel Hadami. I'm the Director of Healthy Communities here at the Vitalist Health Foundation. I oversee our programmatic work in housing, like Anna said, transportation, and a couple of other programmatic aspects. And Thank you, everyone, for that level setting and the introductions as to how your work ties into not only Vitalist work, but also community health. Anna, the first one's for you. The governor dropped her draft budget last week, and there was a lot of things of importance in terms of community health in there. What kinds of things are worth highlighting? If you can go into that from a community health lens, that would be great for us to start that conversation. Sure. So the governor has about $6.2 billion that she's proposing in her executive budget for fiscal year 2025. And she's made significant investments, at least based on her executive budget, on six key priority areas, namely education, Border security is top on her priority list, affordable housing, healthcare licensing reform, prescription drug affordability, and water and natural resources. I think there's a lot of things to highlight in her budget, specifically because one, we are coming to the next fiscal year, 2025, with significant budget deficit, which is about $1.7 billion combined for fiscal year 2024 and fiscal year 2025. For this year, by the end of 
2024, we are looking at about $469 million, I believe, probably more now of a shortfall. And then for next year, we are projected at $890 million. Having said that, I think it's important to highlight that the governor is investing in housing. It's about uh, $8 million for the low-income housing tax credit, extending that initiative $4 million for this past year to $8 million, $13 million for first-time home buyers program, $2.5 million for um, the H2O program, which is the health and housing program. There's significant investment in healthcare, specifically healthcare licensing reform, because we probably are familiar with what's happening with the sober living homes and the nursing care facilities that we're hearing about in the news and media. And that's about $425 million. There's significant investment in the Arizona Healthy Tomorrow. We have a very significant issue with our healthcare workforce. And so supporting the initiative that's called Arizona Health, Healthy Tomorrow will provide funding to their universities for uh, training our healthcare professionals, specifically in medical schools and other healthcare professions. And then child development, the governor invested $100 million in child care assistance. We all know that for many working families, childcare is a really important issue that probably for most families we experience. I experienced this personally, having all the challenges with childcare. And so the fact that the governor is investing that much money to support approximately 5,000 families to either provide subsidy to support childcare or incentivize childcare providers is actually very good budget proposal, in my opinion. And then there are, of course, other things that we need to think about in terms of K-12 funding and funding for food environments, extending healthy schools, healthy school meals and such. But there's a lot to talk about today. So I'm going to stop there. Those are the big highlights in terms of the governor's budget proposal for 2025. Thank you, Anna. That was a a good rundown of, of some of the things that are happening in the governor's budget. You recently wrote a blog post about the governor's budget. What was in there about AZDHS licensing and transparency measures? It's been a tumultuous year if if people have been following the news since I believe it was in May when that fraudulent billing was discovered and, and announced. How can this help ensure safety for Arizonans? What do these proposals do for the safety of vulnerable communities? Here's the deal. Most listeners will remember the sober living outpatient treatment clinic fraud, which looks like it was about a billion dollars worth of fraud over the course of three years where people were sent to fake outpatient treatment clinics who were enrolled in the American Indian Health Plan. And I think everyone's dumbfounded about how those claims could explode like that over the course of three years and have access not catch it, but they didn't. Maybe the attorney general will uncover more about that, but that's obviously a huge problem in state government in the outpatient treatment clinic world, in particular related to the American Indian Health Plan. But your listeners will also remember that the auditor general wrote a really series of scathing audits about how the Arizona Department of Health Services regulates or rather doesn't regulate skilled nursing facilities. And then the Arizona Republic ran a series over the summer last year. Caitlin McGlade did a terrific job in that series at the Republic where they discussed 
the lack of regulation of assisted living centers. So here we have a combination of three areas within the state health department and state government that were left to their own devices that led to both fraud and substandard care in assisted living, skilled nursing, and then outpatient treatment clinics serve supposedly services for people on the American Indian Health Plan. And in fact, I don't think for the first time I can remember in a long time, a governor admitted, Governor Hobbs admitted that proposals to clean up the licensing division at the state health department were triggered by the journalism that was done over the summer this year in, in 2023 at the Republic. Most governors will never admit that stories in a newspaper were driving their policy. But in this case, she basically said, yeah, I, this is a disturbing set of stories. And we're going to embark on an effort to fix our licensing division at the state health department. And so I just needed to plow the ground a bit before I answered the question that you asked, which is, was the governor have planned to help improve the assurance and licensure of assisted living, skilled nursing, and then even outpatient treatment for people with substance abuse issues? And so the two answers to the question, and I'll just answer the money now, and I think maybe later on we can dive into some more policy changes that aren't related to money that the governor is looking towards legislative session. She plans on increasing funding for the licensing program at the state health department with an additional $1.9 million and some additional funding to add up to 16 staffers that could follow up on complaints, do general inspections and enforcement at assisted living and skilled nursing facilities. Again, that money would go to the state health department. And then there's an additional half million dollars that she's proposing Actually, it's a. I think it's $900,000 to improve transparency so that people who are shopping for assisted living or skilled nursing or their family members will have more. You can check on the track record of the facilities easier. And she wants to make it so that you can't just change your name and make it look like you have a clean track record if you're a bad facility. She is putting her money where her mouth is when it comes to cleaning up the licensing, the, the lack of diligence that the state health department showed during the Ducey administration at licensed facilities, especially assisted living and skilled nursing. I'll leave it there because I give somebody else a turn on this question, but I would like to later on dive into the details of some of that policy changes that the governor's proposing, not related to money, but policy changes to fix the slipshot regulation of assisted living and skilled nursing. We'll definitely dive into those policy changes a little bit later. Gabe, we talked about housing and transportation. That's the area that you oversee here at Vitalist. In terms of those two areas, what kind of bills have we seen so far? Whether they're positive, negative, what things are we seeing? Yeah, this, this legislative session is going to be interesting or has been interesting to see the number of bills that have come out specifically for housing. We know the governor came out with her statement supporting having housing support throughout her agenda this upcoming year. And we've seen that consistent over the last couple of years as far as housing being a priority. Some of the biggest items are, are additional funding for housing providers, but then the extension of programs like the state light tech. And I had mentioned the expansion of that as it sunsets and funding has been allocated out. So an additional funding allocation and an extension of the program are being championed for this upcoming year. We've seen continued support 
again, some of these are, are budgetary restrictions. So we've seen continued support for the Arizona Housing Trust Fund to get funding, additional funding to maintain other statewide programs. And then we're following some very specific programs that would help first-time home buyers, that would help other low-income housing tax credit programs find additional funding. Um, we're also looking at the continuation of our housing on school properties bill, really like a workforce bill to see how public entities can best utilize their property to build housing for the community around them. Um, so we're really looking forward to that aspect. Last year, the biggest spark was the buy-ride zoning. So this year, we've seen various aspects of buy-ride zoning from both parties talking about transit-oriented development, both and uh, buy-ride zoning on either side of transit-oriented development. We're keeping an eye on how that progresses to see how the community responds to those bills. We've had good conversation with community members about how they feel about it. Some are for, some are against it. We really want to see how that conversation progresses and how those bills progress throughout the session. Let's talk about workforce and healthcare access. What kind of bills have we seen come down from either side? Anything that, that is worth mentioning that could hold future promise for Arizonans? Yeah, so I think it's important to note that there is more than 1,400 bills already introduced as of yesterday. So I just checked the website and there's 1,400. And so we know for a fact that there's a lot of interest in certain healthcare initiatives and improvements and expansion of healthcare services and workforce. But of course, we know that not all of the bills that have been introduced will make it to the committees. And so the bills that I think are very promising are related to expansion of dental coverage. Certainly, that one has already been heard by the Senate Health and Human Services Committee last week, I believe, and uh, yesterday was heard at the Appropriations Committee. That bill specifically asked for the expansion of dental coverage specifically for preventative dental care for adults, essentially 21 years and over. And then there is a promise in terms of health insurance coverage, in terms of the expansion of other covered services for cancer screening and diagnostic services, hearing aids for kids. And then there's a number of bills that have been filed related to uh, prescription drug cost and essentially limiting the drug cost so that Arizonans can have affordable access to prescription medicines. In terms of workforce, healthcare workforce is, is, of course, a significant issue for our state, as I mentioned earlier, and definitely the governor has invested a lot of money in her proposed budget for ensuring that we have a robust workforce that will really drive our economy forward. And there's a handful of bills that I've seen in terms of expansion of scope of practices for behavioral health providers. We know that mental health is a very critical issue for our state. Obviously, we were talking about the sober living homes and access to behavioral health services. There's a number of bills related to expanding scope of practices for licensed clinical social workers, for example, or creating multi-state compact licensing agreements for, again, specific for behavioral health services, and then also pharmacists in just recognizing that pharmacy professionals are a part of a team-based 
healthcare. And so there are bills around expansion of pharmacy services or scope of services, and then collaborative practice agreements. And then I'm going to have Will talk about bills related to sober living homes and um, nursing care facilities. You're always the one who gives us some specificity and, and insights that might not be in the stories that we read or the stories that we hear. So thanks for the softball on that, Anna. <laughs> yeah, there's several bills that are looking to shore up the authority that the state health department has when trying to get compliance at assisted living, skilled nursing, and sober living facilities. And those will be coming out. They are out. And you mentioned there's 1,600 bills. Some of those directly deal with tools that the state health department needs to get better compliance from licensed facilities like assisted living, skilled nursing, and sober living. One, and this is a really important one, is a bill that would allow the state health department to increase the fines that it assesses against facilities that ignore their directives to get into compliance with state regulations. Right now, and for the last, I think, 20 years, maybe even more, the most the state health department could fine a facility is $500. Now, for you and me as individual people, a $500 fine would be like, oh my goodness, that's a lot of money. For an assisted living facility or a skilled nursing facility, it's lunch money. It's so little money that it's inconsequential. And so when assisted living or skilled nursing or sober living facility gets a $500 fine, they blow it off. Honestly, I know from experience because I used to run the state health department. Back even when I was in that director job, I tried to get our authority lifted so that we could fine people more than just $500. So it was meaningful. In order to get places to do the right thing, you need both carrots and sticks. Carrots and sticks are both important. And the carrots are being fair with facilities, making sure they know what it is that there's expected of them. When you have somebody that's trying to get into compliance, allow them the opportunity to do that. And the sticks involved, threatening them in, so that they care enough to fix stuff. And sadly, there are operators that need sticks. So the sticks are in, they're just not sufficient right now. And we're going to see some bills that increase that fine authority. Now, just because the governor wants it doesn't mean that it's going to happen. She's going to have to build a coalition at the legislature of most Democrats and even a few Republicans to get that fine authority updated. So that's an important one. Another thing that she wants to fix, and I agree with this too, is that when you got a bad assisted living or skilled nursing facility and they're under a, an enforcement order, maybe even facing a suspended or revocation of their license because they haven't fixed stuff that damages harmful to patient care, what they sometimes do is sell it to their cousin or something like that and change the name and apply for a new permit. And then they start with a brand new clean license. That's called license hopping. And it's been legal. It's been a loophole for a long time. It's not used that often, but when it is used, it's usually used by the worst places. I think this is a kind of bill that there'll be consensus on down at the legislature to just to crack down on license hopping. Again, that needs a policy change, just like lifting the, the fine limits for those kind of licensed facilities. 
the, I mentioned that she's proposing an additional about $2 million so the state health department can hire more people. You can't do any of this unless you have talented, qualified people that you're able to train and retain. And so that's an important investment that needs a budget piece. And then the governor also specifically mentioned her interest in a more transparent quality rating system for the general public. Right now, there's a thing called azcarecheck.com. It was actually started during the Napolitano administration, and it allows you to look at licensed facilities like nursing homes, assisted living centers, childcare, even sober living homes and stuff like that so that you can look at the track record of the place that you're considering sending a loved one or going to. But it's a clunky system that hasn't kept up with tricks of the trade within the IT world to make things so that they're searchable and usable for the public. If you go to the AZ Care Check site, you'll look at it and go, oh my gosh, it looks like this code was written in 2004. And you'd be right. <laughs> so one of the things she wants to do is to update that system so that people can actually do research. And at the same time, crack down on license hopping. So you just can't change your name and clean up your track record that way. And then of course the fines that means so much to those bad facilities that don't care about, they only care about whether they get caught and how much the fine is, not other stuff. And that's a minority of the places on it, but it doesn't take very many to create really a whole bunch of bad outcomes. So those are some of the things, and the governor's putting her money where her mouth is, at least in her proposed budget for some of those things. But some, like I said, don't require money. And before I hand it back to you, I just, I, I do want to make a, a quick editorial comment about how it is that we ended up here with such a bad system for monitoring health and safety of patients in assisted living, skilled nursing, and sober living homes. And I hope you don't have to cut this in the podcast, but I'm going to say it anyway. One of the things that Governor Ducey campaigned on back in 2014 was that he was going to cut the size of state government by 40% by the end of his second term. And he tried like a Dickens to do that. He didn't succeed. Uh, but one of the things that he did was put state agencies on a quote, and I'm using air quotes, you can't see me, but a headcount cap. And what that meant was that agencies, a state agency has uh, the authority to, let's say they have, they can have 500 FTEs. An FTE is a person who's full-time. And that's the end. They can't have any more than that. But when you have an economy that's growing as fast as we are, you're going to have more and more places that you need to license and regulate. And he left, Governor Ducey left it up to agency directors to decide where they're going to use their headcount. Where are they going to hire their people? And one of the things that former Director Christ and then later Interim Director Harrington did was they really did not replace people that left assisted living and skilled nursing regulatory positions. They let them retire, but then didn't backfill and said, okay, we'll use that on our headcount cap and we'll hire a new, you know, communication specialist or something like that. And that led to an eight-year atrophy of the license program. It led to the stories that you read in the Republic from Caitlin McGlade about why these facilities keep getting away with such substandard care. The things the governor's has proposed are helpful, but I don't want to set the expectation that. If all these things pass and the new money gets appropriated, that the state health department is going to be able to turn this program around really fast because it took eight years 
to atrophy the licensing program. And it's going to take a little bit of time, probably a couple more years, if they really work hard, recruit, hire new people, retain them to be able to get up to speed to where we were, quite honestly, in 2015. That was actually going to be my question, right? Was going to be, well, the propagation of all of these sober living homes, right? Which just, I think you told us in, in a meeting maybe like three or four months ago that the number of them just steadily increased and increased at an astronomical rate. And you mentioned earlier that a $500 fine is lunch money to them. If you happen to know what, if you set up a sober living home, what do you get per patient that you're serving? And I think that's the question is, I think for a lot of people, they saw it as a business and they just thought, this is just a way to get some state money into my pocket. And they weren't dealing with the actual care that people need and deserve when they're being Well, I'm glad you asked that question because we keep talking about this as a sober living home scandal. That's not what it is. This was an outpatient treatment clinic scandal among people on the American Indian Health Plan at Access. So what happened was they found, because, okay, we got to start with fee-for-service. Our Medicaid system is on a capitated basis. In other words, the Mercy Care, United, whoever the, the agency is that people are enrolled with on Access, get a per member per month amount of money. And those managed care plans are expected to manage the treatment of each of those persons within that cap. But there's an exception for the American Indian Health Plan. And that, because it's a fee-for-service program, what these clever fraudsters figured out is that they could find people enrolled in the American Indian Health Plan, which is part of access and fee-for-service, and they would be able to send them to an outpatient treatment clinic for, a, let's say, alcohol treatment or counseling and get more than $1,000 a day for just a little bit of counseling and get reimbursed for that. So they started finding people, even going up into Native American nations and talking people or getting them drunk and bringing them down to Phoenix and putting them in a flop house, basically, a sober living home, and then either sending them to an outpatient treatment clinic for alcohol counseling or other substance abuse counseling, or even not doing it and keeping them in the flop house, i.e. sober living home, and not even sending them out to treatment and still billing it. And Access didn't catch it and paid all those claims out. So the fraud was perpetrated by outpatient treatment clinics. And the outpatient treatment clinics, or the people that were sending them to these outpatient treatment clinics, were just paying for the flop house, i.e. sober living facility. So there was a place, like a couch for them to sleep on. And so that just kept them in a single place so that they could keep billing for bad or non-existent treatment. And that went on for years. So got off on a little bit of a tangent here, I think. But Gabe has something to add like on this. Gabe, what about policy changes, either the state housing department? What's going on there? We talked about healthcare policy changes. What's new in housing? The Arizona Department of Housing is hard at work on distributing the funding that they that was allocated last year, $150 million investment into the housing trust fund. So they're working hard on getting the NOFAs, the notice of funding out to the public to use that funding. So we're really excited to see how many of those notices have gone out, how that money's being expended. So that money's being used well. 
the other things that I've heard from the Department of Housing is some of their process, internal processes around legislation that's come up. So when we talked about some of the by right or zoning legislation, things like manufactured housing and the pro- internal processes that the Department of Housing is looking at, how they can help manufactured housing developers go through that process in a more streamlined fashion. So I know that they're addressing some of the concerns there, or at least bolstering their efforts to make sure manufactured housing is those manufactured housing developers are doing well through that process. Uh, as we see cities, the city of Phoenix passed technical amendments allowing manufactured housing in a variety of new areas and eliminated the minimum uh, acreage needed for a manufactured housing park. We've seen other cities follow suit and we've heard from organizations like Liga Cities that manufactured housing uh, is one of those zoning measures that's a good compromise for most cities. As we see the demand for more manufactured housing, ADUs, tiny builds, whatever we want to call them, the need to uh, step up production is there. So we've heard that there's a lot of progress in that as well. And those are some of the bigger things. I know, again, pushing for the housing trust fund and then support for the state light tech and how to best use the federal light tech funding. Those are all things that are constantly in play with the Department of Housing. I think at the end of the day, how do we let everyone know that if we want affordable housing for everyone, we have to allow people to build it because you're either going to see apartments or you're going to see people down your streets because this isn't avoiding any cities, whether you're in Peoria, whether you're in Glendale, whether you're in Phoenix, whether you're in Scottsdale, Chandler, anywhere. It doesn't matter where you are in Maricopa County and I'm assuming across the state. We've seen campaigns, Home Matters Arizona has homes where it all starts campaign. There's another organization that's trying to educate the broader public and build support at public meetings for a good development. There's some churning of that as well for support. I just hope the cities can catch up and we'll see what the impact of the legislation. I think that will be the the stick for sure. This is a question for all of you. What can we expect in the next few months as this legislative session gets gets underway in, in terms of not just legislation, but other policy changes that might be coming down the pipeline? I'm going to tell you what I do. This is I'm speaking now for the Arizona Public Health Association. One of the things I try to do is to focus my energy and attention on those what I think are important public health policy bills that come up that don't have a well-heeled paid lobbyist with a $3,000 suitcase, $1,000 shoes. They're all over the Capitol representing one organization or another. And I try to focus on those areas that are good policy, but that don't have a well-heeled paid lobbyist pushing for it. I think that's a good use of my time. And this year, I'm focusing a lot of that effort on changes to state law to help improve care for people with a serious mental illness. So one of the things I really hope to achieve by the end of this legislative session is to get some intermediate care facilities, treatment facilities for people with a serious mental illness. So what we have in Arizona right now is We've got the Arizona State Hospital, which is the most intensive and restrictive level of treatment for people with a serious mental illness. And when they're ready for discharge and they're on their road to recovery, there are no step-down facilities like a conditional release unit for their court-ordered treatment or a secure residential facility where they could continue with their court-ordered treatment in a more secure setting in a community, in a neighborhood. 
We don't have those. All we have is the state mental hospital and behavioral health group homes, which are not secured and don't have nurses on hand, just behavioral health techs. So we've got hundreds of these behavioral health group homes, but nothing in the middle where you have a more secure environment with higher level staff, nursing care. And so it's a big gap. And what ends up happening is people end up being discharged from their inpatient behavioral health treatment to just the community where it's a free-for-all at a group home. And we've got to get pieces in place so that people have a stepwise process to continue their recovery. And there's this gap. And so there's several bills that are designed to create more secure residential facilities and a transition unit out of the state hospital that's a higher level of care than even a secure residential facility, but less intensive than the Arizona State Hospital. There's no well-heeled entity trying to get these things done. So that's where I try to put my time and effort on those things where I know this is an important public health matter, and I don't see anybody who's working on this yet. And so that's where I put my time and effort. So I'm going to spend a lot of time this session on trying to improve care for people with a serious mental illness, schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, severe bipolar, that kind of stuff. Great. That shows the gaps in, in that continuum. Right? Like you said, there's nothing in the middle, nothing in the intensive middle. treatment and community treatment of without the right resources. And it causes people to cycle through the system and they discharge from the good, secure place where they were being successful. And the next thing they're in jail for one thing or another or homeless or both or in California where their parents can't find them and they have to start court ordered treatment again in another state. It's really frustrating for parents and family members to not have that middle area to help people become more successful. I'm going to be down actually this afternoon at the Senate Health Committee talking about that secure residential treatment need. Gabe, Anna? So I can go. So I think what we can expect in the next few months, of course, we can expect more bills to come through. Uh, We have until February 5th as a deadline to introduce bills in the House. So I think that we will see more bills over and beyond 1,400, probably 1,500 now. And then really just tracking sound, meaningful bills that will pose no minimal or no risk to our communities, and that includes financial impact. So we want to make sure that we're tracking those bills that are just common sense legislation that will for sure, improve access to health care, improve health for our communities. And I think that's where we are going to invest our efforts as Vitalist Health Foundation and based on our public policy agenda to make sure that our communities are safer and we are able to be part of that in the process. What about you, Gabe? What about on the housing side? I think we're going to see a lot of still more bills coming through for housing, specifically around some zoning measures, some individual zoning measures. So we've seen things like ADUs, manufactured housing, be sprinkled around different committees to see how they're going to make their way through. I think a lot of it's going to come down to budgetary issues. So the conversation around housing trust fund and the state low-income housing tax credit. So we'll see how those conversations move forward. It'll be interesting to see which bills make it out of committee and what the conversation is on the floor for those considering the budget restraints and what the cities are going to be looking to either oppose or support when it comes to some of these by rights. I think there's going to be a lot of housing in committees and a lot of conversation about the funding for housing programs. Great. Thank you. Thank you all so much for sharing with us all of this insight. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. 
probably have you back on in a few months and see what the new update is. So thank you guys for joining us today.